there's a beautiful line in the diary of Maria Faustina. And she's terrified at the powers of evil. And our Lord says to her in a vision, take courage, daughter. The world is not as strong as it seems. College is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your hosts, John Johnson and Larissa Bianco. Welcome back to the Magnus Podcast. Larissa Bianco here, joined by, as always, John Johnson. How are you? Wow, Larissa. Thanks for kicking us off today. Did you get a new microphone? You sound so clear. You know, I figured out how to use the microphone that I have. Wow. It It took meeting with a professional podcast producer and he he showed me something he a very simple trick i should have known but it's made a difference <laughs> moving on up major upgrades <laughs> really, yeah podcast. learning technology right <laughs> we are professionals that's right <laughs> we're trying we're trying before actually i introduce you to today's guest that i'm very excited about i want to give a, a quick shout out to one of our listeners Roberto Hill, he recently left us this five-star review that I'm going to read to you. These podcasts are a very good introduction into the classes that most of them are drawn from. We spend so much time on tributaries when real food is readily available. The topics covered here are eternal and truly meaningful. I am very grateful to the Institute for making these materials available to all. So really appreciate the review. Roberto, I believe, is also a fellow, and he's an active fellow. And um, as most of you know, we survive not only on generous donations, but also reviews like that. So really appreciate that, Roberto, if you're listening. Where do we send his check, Larissa? You know, I think Nicole knows. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. That was freely given. We do appreciate the five-star reviews. It means a lot and and helps people find us in the algorithmic jungle. Yes, there's a lot out there. So thanks to reviews like that. So real quick, let's do a quick summary of season two, because we had, I mean, John, I thought we had some really excellent guests in conversation. We had PhDs, fighters. Okay. Yes, pilots. we did. Are we in season two now? Are we taping season two? No, we're taping season three. Oh, of course. No, we right. So on season two, we had all these wonderful people and all yes. the episodes did really well. And one of our best episodes was with a father and a farmer and a middle school teacher. And our audience might remember him as the man with the grip strength of a Greek God from episode. I don't remember the number, but the sacramental life with Brian Fink. And we are so happy to have him back. Brian, how are you? So good to see you. Thank you. I'm I'm great. Thank you for that kind uh, introduction and a, and a reminder to your audience of possibly the thing that sets me apart from from most other humans on the planet. It is it would be that grip <laughs> strength. So I appreciate that memorable um, reminder for for your audience. It's great to be back, uh, and I'm I'm very grateful for the opportunity to chat with you all again. That was a fantastic episode, and there there is a particular quote that I think about probably every day. You said and I'm going to butcher it, but you said something like 90% of a boy's life is figuring out what will happen if he does a thing. 
Yeah. I got two young boys and that quote just echoes in my life every day when I see these kids in action. Yeah. It's it, well, it's true. And that, it's maddening, but, it, but you can't just because the truth makes you mad doesn't mean you can abandon it. Although that's what a lot of people end up doing, but it's just true. And, and it manifests itself as a kind of disaster. Uh, a beautiful disaster because <laughs> yes. it's mostly destruction and injury, um, harm directed towards self and others uh, in the most playful way possible. Uh, but but for sure, it uh, I see and it that, with, with and that's why people. we die more quickly than our female counterparts. Right, they yeah. they bring us a kind of intuition and a kind of wisdom that we can only hope for. Really, am I for honest? Let's just you it's know. true. How's yeah. the farm life going for you? Things are great, John. Yeah, thanks for asking. We, um, um, the 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 most notable recent event. I picked up my feeder pigs yesterday, so they are they're about this big. They're about you know fifteen or twenty pounds, uh, and uh, they arrived yesterday. So got them in the pig pen. They're getting settled in, which is which is great. Always um, a delight to bring animals to the farm. The kids, of course, love them and. Um, we're still figuring out names. That's that's always a fun uh, a fun um, exercise for us as a family. I, perhaps I mentioned this on the last one, but one of my friends named his pigs after heretics. I think I mentioned that on the last <laughs> podcast, which I thought, uh, which is is a really brilliant way of coming up with. Oh, names. that's so smart! Yeah, we we we're never going to name our pigs again. We did pigs the first time, and now you know they've since gone on to freezer camp, sent them off for a summer and they never came back. Right. But, um, you know, my daughters have a real big problem. Whenever we pull bacon out of the freezer, I get asked, you know, are we eating big booty Judy? Uh, are we eating? <laughs> yes. Yeah. She made the best hams for us, but naming them, it's, the anthropomorphizing of your food is, is not advisable as far as I'm concerned, when you have little kids, what's your take on naming things that you're going to consume? Well, I mean, I suppose there, there are arguments for and against. It's good to be able to identify them, you know, um, because my kids are great accountants of the farm. So they let me know everything that's going on all the time with every animal, including their siblings. And so um, it's good to know if a particular animal uh, isn't doing well. And because pigs generally when they look very similar um you can make some distinguishing marks you know based on the the pattern uh, of their spots or or the shape of their ears but it, that's helpful and we've found that we'll name them sort of whimsically uh, so last year we named we named our pigs flopsy mopsy cottontail and mr mcgregor uh and so <laughs> um, Amazing. <laughs> Try it. Have you ever raised mangalitsas? You ever gotten into those? No. And actually, I did a little research after our, our last conversation because I'd not even heard of the breed before. Um, so did you, those are the ones you did, right? And, and we, did, we did two mangalitsas. Big Booty Judy was a, um, <laughs> a Hampshire and Yorkshire mix, but okay. Porkum and Swinicus were both Mangalitsas, and they're, they're just so intelligent and lovable, which made it hard for their one bad day. But they are delicious. I, it, they call it the uh, the Kobe beef of pork. 
It's oh. it's red. They're grass fed. Basically, they can pasture really well. Okay. They kind of look like you know crazy sheep mixed with woolly mammoths. High fat content, you know. Yeah. So the lardo is just delicious. But you so should get into it. Yeah, they're 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 awesome. Did you so? Did you pasture them using electric fencing, uh, netting? Did okay, you- okay. Now, now here's the thing: if anybody's listening to this who wants to get into pigs, nothing really works. They will get out of everything and you know when they're super cute and young you know it's fine because they just kind of stay put but when they get big they're smart and they're strong and so yeah we tried everything electricity did not work uh the amount of times that i had loose pigs in the in the neighborhood uh to to the chagrin of my neighbors Mm. it was oh my gosh so you gotta basically and you i'm probably telling you what you already know but you gotta dig a trench and then like put a stump or concrete over your under your hog wire so they just can't dig under it because they will figure out a way to root under whatever you put in their way. What do you what do you do? What's your trick, Brian? Well, uh, my grandparents had a, a, a permanent closure, a permanent enclosure with cattle panel, uh, hog panel, cattle panel that, you know, we, we use T posts and corner posts and we kind of sectioned it off into four uh, different areas that we could open and close with permanent gates. But I have talked to some friends, one in particular, who has found that using, has found a way to use electric wire at, at I think he said he kept it at uh, one strand at three inches and one at six inches. And once they had uh, touched their noses to it for the first time, they realized pretty quickly that's not something they'd like to do. But uh, I've also had, I've also had friends who've, who've given me the same kind of story that you have, John, that, that even then they find a way they find some way life finds a way, right? The famous life story. finds a way. Yeah. Especially if you have a boar, I don't know if, I don't know if you ever made that mistake. When I got pigs, I was, I was really into preparing for the COVID apocalypse. And so mm-hmm. I, I decided that we needed a way to make more pigs if, mm-hmm. if we wanted to. Mm-hmm. So I did, I, I made the mistake of getting a boar and you just don't, you just don't need that in your life. Boris was just a, a beast, you know, and you couldn't, you couldn't eat him because the boar taint. So we ended up selling him and that was a lot of fun just mm. getting him in that trailer. Uh, but that guy did what he wanted to. Right. Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so the, the only males we've ever had, the only barrels we've ever, ever had have, have been, have been castrated, uh, which um, as you can imagine, and, and your listeners probably can too, it takes the life out of, it takes the life out of them in a, in a profound way. And I, I, the reasons for it are good, especially if you're raising them uh, and, and raising them humanely. And you can actually do castration very humanely on any animal, uh, although people might disagree and you might get a lot of hate mail for that. But um, we'll send it your way. Thank yeah. You. Well, this is a perfect segue. <laughs> I actually love to ask you uh, how the modern education system does exactly what I should have done to Boris to the young men in its system. Well, we, I mean, we covered a little bit of that base last time. Uh, and uh, um, I think even since we talked last, however, that was about a year ago, I think it's not only the case that the modern education system is, is doing it increasingly in an indoctrinationally psychological way, but they're actually promoting the physical uh, the, the physical complement as well, which is 
which is enough to make you want to never go out in public again or take your kids anywhere ever. Um, mm. And it's, it's say more, say more. How how is that at work? Well, I'll 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 just share the summary of a conversation I had yesterday with the guy from whom we get our pigs and our grain, and he's a great faithful uh, husband and father. Uh, and I had been listening to. Um, I've been listening to the Joe Rogan uh, Kennedy podcast, and yeah. uh, he had found he, he'd he'd listened to it as well. And we started uh, at, we started the conversation by essentially saying, "What is a what is a husband and father to do in the face of um, of a culture that seeks to poison our children in every way possible, even literally?" I mean, if you haven't watched that episode, right? Alex Jones was right. Apparently they are putting stuff in the water to turn the frogs gay and everything else that drinks the water. Right. So, right. Yeah. It's terrifying. It's brutal. And you know, you, you just, we took solace in, in the fact that at least for our own families, we were trying to grow as much food as we could raise as much food as we could. Uh, we have, you know, we, we live uh, out, in, out in the country, and so we have a well. Uh, so, in a sense, perhaps we're we're somewhat freed from from water contamination, but in the in a very real sense, not because we don't you, you don't quite know what's going into the soil around the well. And yeah, no, especially when your neighbors are pumping the Roundup into the soil, you know. And now I'm starting to sound like my lefty environmentalist father. Bless his heart, I love very much. Yeah. But it it is this sort of strange bedfellows thing, the environmentalists teaming up with the the Catholic Earth moms uh, and and the homesteaders, right? Right. Uh, but we do have some common uh, foes. It's fair to say. Right. Right. And and the solace in in the human sense or in the temporal sense is that we're doing what we can practically, but but at the end of the day, our our hope is heaven. And that's what you come back to. And, and we started talking about, okay, well, what does that look like practically? And you can't just surrender. That's the thing, right? Tolkien talks famously about the long defeat and that, that at the end, when Christ returns, he will return in victory. But meantime, we're just losing really slowly. And yeah, that's a hard feels, thing. To, yeah. Feels good, Brian. Feels good. That losing. <laughs> I mean, it's a hard thing to contemplate because what you're initially inclined to do is just despair and give up and just start scrolling through uh, Instagram, hoping to escape all of it and uh, give your kids a device so that they, they'll hush up for a while and uh, just just sort of uh, imagine it's not really happening. But 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 what does what does losing well look like? And and I think for this for this guy he and I were talking about, well, it's a, it's a kind of active resistance and losing well is winning. I think we just figured out the title of this podcast, Larissa, I'll let you make that decision, but uh, it's true. Um, I mean, is that, is that what it's all about? Just the art of losing beautifully. But depending on how you define your terms, right. Mm -hmm. That's the thing. Uh, because we live in an already, but not yet reality that's with the incarnation and and the paschal mystery we live in an, in an already but not yet one victory and so um 
but in the in the, in the living that out, it's a it maybe it is a, a losing. Well, losing not necessarily beautifully, but but depending on the term, losing courageously. Right, mm-hmm. we're not going to just give up our homeland just because we are outmanned, outgunned, outnumbered, outclassed, outmaneuvered. Uh, it, it will, and maybe I could clarify that by saying we're losing mostly because of sheer numbers. It's not like the enemy is, ter- well, can be sophisticated, I suppose, but. Um, it's true. I've always, I've, I probably said this on the podcast before at some point, but there's a beautiful line in the diary of Maria Faustina. And she's terrified at the powers of evil. And our Lord says to her in a vision, take courage, daughter. The world is not as strong as it seems. Yeah. And the and the more I dive into you know to the business world to the world of education, cultural battles, you do really see that that our enemies are really not that intelligent, they're not that cunning, they're not that good looking, and and they're sort of ripe for the picking. They're ripe for the defeating. And if we just kind of realize the power that the the church had that that education proper can have. And that most importantly, I think families can have upon culture. I don't think we'd be so doomsaying. Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's well said, John. It is, and and uh, we part of it is the recognition, and and in thinking about discussing, you know, perhaps some of the the, the philosophical wisdom of, of Joseph Pieper, which we which we may or may not get to, which is fine by me. But let's uh, get to it. One of the things that I I just keep coming back to with him is his his notion that that living well is is about seeing that that is a real at the heart of it is seeing reality as it is. And and amidst all the challenges that that act against that or that that try to subjugate that to some some sort of feeling or pleasure or or, or emotion, that's at the heart of I think his philosophy is is this way of of seeing. And so the more we can recognize that, the the easier it is to understand our enemy, ourselves. You know, that's that's usually the first step is is a proper understanding of self. Um, and, and, and at the same time, uh, the notion of the pilgrim, right. Mm-hmm. Is at the heart of his philosophy as well. And, and that's what the conversation that I had with my pig guy was that y- you would despair thinking that this is it. If that was your way of understanding reality, you would despair because, yes. because it is a long, slow losing. And at the end, there's nothing else. So having a vision of what truly is to come gives you freedom in in resisting in fighting back in having hope even in the midst of suffering in, in so in- let's let's dig into that word seeing because i think you're right it is critical to understand the victory i just wrapped a class in the magnus fellowship on the epistemology of saint john at work in saint john's gospel mm. And we found it very interesting how John 
uses this particular word, uh, especially around the resurrection and especially around Mary Magdalene, who had just experienced the horrors of the cross. And she goes to the, the garden on the eighth day and sees who she thinks is a gardener, you know, ironically or not. Um, we're back in the garden, the original garden, but it's something is new. And then John says she she saw, and that, and he uses this word repeatedly in the resurrection context, but is theoria. And I think Peeper goes to length to unpack this word. Mm. So, and it's not like a typical, there's there's like four Greek words for see, right? And this one is different. It's intuitive, receptive, holistic, sacramental in a way. So speak about this word. When we see when we say the word see, we mean something very particular by it in this sense. Right. Right. Well, I mean, based on what you just summarized of the class you just finished teaching, John, perhaps I should just give you the floor and allow you to elaborate. I mean, the, no, no. The the uh well, let me start by, I was just reading this morning. I've got all of all of my, every Peeper book that I own is in front of me. It's not many. It's in 12 or, or 13 maybe, but. Uh, That's pretty good. That's a pretty good Peeper stack. I was just counting my Peeper today. It's probably about that. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone, everyone is worth owning. Oh, I mean, it's just so rich. It's true. It's true. And I particularly love. The, these the the slim volumes that you can find, and I was reading today uh, from only the lover sings art and mm. contemplation, and mm. one of the chapter titles is learning how to see again. Mm. And so you, you know you kind of read through and without reading the whole thing, it's it's short. It's only five or this particular short essay is only five or six pages in this tiny book, so you could read it in in ten minutes, but. Um, but he starts by saying man's ability ability to see is in decline. And he talks about what that means and, and what that is. And of course, he distinguishes it from mere physical seeing, but he also talks about how physical vision is the highest sense that, that human beings have with regard to the five senses. Uh, and he talks about the reasons why. The reasons why man's vision is declining and it's all of the things that you would expect, uh, but I love, he highlights at one point, the idea of visual noise. And this is written, I mean, I'm not going to be able to find the, the original uh, published date of this essay, but, but obviously, you know, we're, we're getting close to a century um, uh, or at least 75 years uh, when, when he's writing, he's writing in, in you know, in, in the, the early part of the 20th century. But he he talks about visual noise and how easily that's distracting. He, he's coming back from having visited the United States. And he says, I just couldn't understand why people who had been on this trip and were returning now by boat had essentially said, we wanted to see the United States with our own eyes. But then when he overheard conversations with some of the passengers, what he realized was that they hadn't seen anything. All they, all they could repeat were tourist slogans and um, uh, and nothing particularly interesting. And he thought, well, what's the reason for that? Um, and he says part of it, part of modern man's uh, challenge is that there's too much to see, right? Too much to see. And of wow. course, 
he goes on to say that uh, the, the ancient sages knew explicitly why they called the concupiscence of the eyes a destroyer. And I'll just read this very quickly. He says, the restoration of man's inner eyes can hardly be expected in this day and age unless, first of all, one were willing and determined simply to exclude from one's realm of life all those inane and contrived but titillating illusions incessantly generated by the entertainment industry. Wow. And I thought to myself, this might lead to a really fascinating question for both of you. The temptation that we have, even toward what seems to be a profoundly good end, but the temptation that we have to, how do, how do I, how do you as an institute grapple with adding to the noise? How do you grapple with? <laughs> wow. That's the million dollar question. You know what I mean? Because in my own particular way, I do the same thing. I write this blog uh, uh, blog article uh, for for, for the Institute, and I think it's pretty good. And the first thing I do is, well, I better share this on Twitter because people need to read it. And the more people read it, the more people will see it. And then more people might be interested in the things that I have to say. And and if I don't produce enough content, no one's going to be particularly interested. Whatever the quality might be, people are going to say, well, this guy doesn't, he hasn't written a whole lot. So it must not be very interesting, whatever the quality might be. It's, 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 it's a race for quantity. It's a race for, for, for space. And as I was thinking, I just thought, how do you grapple with that? You know, that's a beautiful question. And I'll, I'll kind of share, I think the nature of the good is to be diffusive of itself. It wants to be shared. Um, you know, you've received a certain kind of education. We have two, and you have you have a few amount of friends, right? Who you can have great discussions with over a, a couple fingers of whiskey and a campfire. And you think to yourself, well, wouldn't this be great to have more involved? Like, what don't you want to share it? And you just do, right? And so then you're up against uh, like what Peeper was, you were just, just referencing of his, and I, I'm reminded of this remark by Pope Benedict, the glitter of the world that is the great distraction. But there is a sense, especially in, in which on, it's the world of online education, right? You have to, you have to do this beautiful thing, but then get people excited about it. So you got to do the podcast, you got to do the marketing stuff, you got to do social media, you got to hire Larissa, you know, um, to to get the word out, right? You do such a good job of it, Larissa, at it. So um, I think the good wants to be shared. And I think we're called to share it in the mode of the receiver, right? That's kind of fundamental Aquinas, right? That, that um, things can only be given in the mode of the receiver. And that's what love is. It seeks the other on the other's terms right. as right. beloved. And so, yeah, if we're in a flashy, glittery online social media culture, I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, pursuing uh, good things and sharing good things in in the the mode of the culture du jour. Yeah. Uh, but it is difficult to balance and to protect what needs to be protected, uh, the authenticity of the content, the fidelity to the curriculum and the canons. Uh, because if you just um, commercialize and productize everything, you lose 
the core. You lose the invisible usias. You lose the substance of it when all you have is uh, the bion. There's, there's, it's the the prodigal son is a very interesting. If you read the, the Greek in Luke's gospel, the son starts off with the usias of the father, and he doesn't know it. And he says, Father, give me a share of thy inheritance. And the father gives him a share of, and Luke changes the Greek word from usias, substance, to bion, to the uh, visible signs of life. And the son's like, sweet, I got the signs, uh, but I don't know how to grow my own farm, right? And he goes out and he squanders everything. And then he actually loses his usias that he had all along and didn't know it. And then he's got to go back to the father and get the usias back. If you, if you read Luke's prodigal son in the Greek, your mind will be changed by seeing the difference between these two things. So the question is, how do you convey the substance of the liberal arts in the mode of the culture with the right bionic wrapper around it to make it palatable and attractive? And Mm -hmm. that's just, that's a perennial battle, right? And not just in this work, in any work of evangelization, in any work of education. Right. So- Larissa, I'd love for you to comment on that because you're the one who does it day to day. Well, you know, this just makes me immediately think of the abolition of man, especially earlier in this conversation when we were talking about castrating and then asking for <laughs> flourishment. Um, but he talks about the difference between indoctrinating or feeding them propaganda versus propagating. And he says mm-hmm. propaganda is creating something for your end, creating something for your means. Like you feed the chickens because you want to eat them later, but you keep them in cages because you don't care if they're getting the good stuff. You just need them to get fat so you can eat them. But propagating is teaching them how to flourish, like a mother bird teaching her baby bird how to fly. It's giving them what they need for human flourishment. And I think, you know, with us especially, and really this is all about modern education, right? Like it's not for our ends. It's for their ends. It's for the ends of the student. And if you're in any form of job that does any form of marketing or teaching, you got to think about how this, what does this do to the end of the person that I'm giving it to? Or is it just to serve me? And it's terrifying because that's all over education, right? Like it's not about the student. It's about the propaganda that the left wants to feed them or whoever it is, even Christian schools. Probably is power. Yeah, exactly. Like, (laughs) yeah, like even these Christian schools that say we're raising them up to love Jesus. Are you, though? Are you doing it because you want your school to look good at the SAT? You want parents come to your school because your students go to the best colleges, whatever that even means. Mm. Right. Right. No, that's it's very insightful and and a a perennial challenge, as you said, John. you, people are in, I think the same essay, I can't find it right offhand, but he he talks about, well, two things are necessary to begin seeing again. He says, well, first of all, you got to get rid of all the, you got to get rid of all the, um, uh, those, those inane and contrived titillating illusions. Okay. You start there. Um, but he, he says, then there are two other things that can be done. First, he says, um, a regimen of fasting and abstinence, which is kind of surprising, but but not so much if you've read Pieper's work, um, that there's an element of silence that's absolutely fundamental to receiving the, the receiving uh, the the reality of creation, receiving the universe, right? 
Um, listening, Aristotle, I think, says it's listening to the being of things, or perhaps he's quoting an earlier uh, philosopher. So there's a, a kind of physical denial, but then he says uh, a more immediately effective remedy is to be active oneself in artistic creation, producing shapes and forms for the eye to see, which allows, he says later, someone like Tolstoy to say the girl's eyes were gleaming like wet currents. Mm. And uh, mm. you, you only get there if you have spent a lot of time looking at the human face and looking at the eye, but also knowing what wet currents are and look like. And so, yes. so he talks about artistic creation as a possibility. And yet he says, one of the things, one of the traps is, is creating art for the sake of utility, mm. creating it for the sake of spectacle, creating it for the sake of um, profit. And, um, and the tension there is, is, is real because I can tell you from, from my own experience that you're tempted to write, not that I write a lot or that any of my writing is terribly profitable, but I'm often tempted to write what I think will sell or will get a click, get a like, get a reply, get, get attention. And inevitably, that writing is shallow and contentious and not particularly interesting in the true sense. It, it doesn't convey reality, uh, but it gets attention. And, and that's a dangerous trap, uh, but so enticing to, to say, I know if I say it this way, it will make more people laugh or it will make more people upset or it will be more controversial. I know if I say it that way, but it's not really saying the true thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's challenging, you know, it's difficult. It's so challenging. And I don't even know, I don't have an answer for you, right? Like I, I just got on Twitter myself. Larissa, you were begging me to do it. So I would stop ghost posting from the, uh, from the <laughs> official AMI account. So I finally got my own. And how do you do it right? Because you want to say the things that get you the followers, but then you got to sell out to do it. And I'm just not going to be the guy that's like, Oh, it's an honor to be invited to speak at so and so today, and an honor to get you know this like humble bragging, self promoting. I just can't stand it, and nobody can, right? It, um, but then some things need to be said, something should be promoted, and right. so it, I think fundamentally it's an internal struggle, right? Why am I doing this? Why am I doing? Why am I? Why is John Johnson do AMI? Mm. Uh, I don't make a dollar from it. Uh, is it like an ego? Uh, play, you know, like, look what I can do. Maybe there's some of that there. Like maybe I have something to prove. I don't know. I don't want to psychoanalyze myself on the podcast, but you do have to every day wake up and try to do something good with pure intentions, which absolutely is impossible. It's impossible to do something good with a completely pure intention. I think Aquinas says that explicitly actually. And so it's a constant prayer to purify one's intentions, right? Right. And you see the good that it's doing and you say, okay, it is good in itself. And there are people benefiting and, and that keeps you grateful. I think if, if you have a spirit of gratitude about the work that God allows you to do, you can really give him glory as hard as that is to do. Right. Yeah, absolutely. To understand, to understand that 
you know, Solanus Casey saying, thank God ahead of time, understanding that everything, everything we receive is a gift. Uh, even our ability to share with everything. And so it's a proper disposition. And that, that disposition is, I think, also at the heart of Joseph Pieper's writing, especially his writing on leisure. Uh, the, the, the term often misunderstood uh, and misinterpreted, especially in, modern, in, in our modern understanding, because it just sounds so much like relaxation, like an old word for relaxation. So why are you using the word leisure? Um, um, but it it's not necessarily, at least in, in my reading of Joseph Pieper, it, it begins with the right disposition, an internal disposition and a way of a way of seeing that requires silence, it requires docility and humility. Uh, and an openness to receiving a gift. And that's really hard. It's amazing how hard it is for people, perhaps myself included, to receive a gift. It is hard because fundamentally, what does Pieper say? That it, leisure is only possible after work, right? The, the, the otium is only possible uh, with uh, after a lot of negotium, I think he says, right? The, the the negotiation means being not at leisure, and it's a lot harder to pick up the brothers Karamazov and read a chapter than it is to scroll through Twitter for a half an hour. They both take the same amount of time. They probably both burn the same amount of calories, but one is just a lot harder to do. Yeah. But it's also categorically more profitable more enriching, more peaceful, more joy, uh, more inspiring in a way that promotes this and renders this fruit of leisure. Even if it's really hard to start about 20 minutes into uh, Father Zosimo's speech, right? You're going to be at leisure, Uh, but it's really hard to start that process because it's just so much easier to pick up your phone and, and doom scroll. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I was having, we had a very similar conversation. We had friends over last night for dinner and um, they're parents of a former student who just graduated uh, and is going on to high school. And we were talking about a very similar topic. And I ended up reading my eighth graders, the novel True Grit, uh, as kind of a way to end the school year. We had kind of gotten to that point in history and uh, trying to give them a, a a kind of fictional retelling. It's it's post Civil War, but um, but it took the students seventy five pages before they started liking the book. And it's and True Grit is not necessarily an intellectually demanding text, but mm-hmm. it's way more intellectually demanding than the five minute YouTube video that I could have shown them, or certainly what. Many of them, not all of them, and much of the time, if not not necessarily all of the time, uh, what they're doing otherwise. It, it, and finally, 75 pages in, in the book's only a couple hundred pages. Finally, they're like, Mr. Fink, can we read this? Let's read one of let's read True Grit. And it was amazing for me to to see that that shift uh, because it takes this intellectual um, commitment, you know. Um, to to get to that point of pigs habit habit habitus yeah. habits always easy but habits hard to form yeah, right. whether that's smoking okay it's like super painful to smoke your first cigarette but you do it twenty times and all of a sudden it's hard to stop 
or yeah. exercise or any athletic ability. It takes work to cultivate habit, which results in ease, either the ease of the habit that is good and beautiful, which we call a virtue, or the ease of a habit that is ugly and destructive, which we call a vice. Right. But either way, the work you do is going to prepare and cement one habit or the other. Right. So I want to talk about uh, a blog you wrote for AMI. Yes, we have a blog. How do you find it, Larissa? What is it? Magnus Institute uh, articles? The backslash articles. Backslash articles. Uh, okay. Or is it a forward slash? I don't know. Just Google it. Um, but you can find our <laughs> blog. And Brian Fink wrote a couple great pieces on there. But I want to talk about one in particular. What do you know thinking about thinking? And you described pretty brilliantly around this uh, Charlotte Mason idea of education that is the, the act of knowledge. And you speak of a child teaching himself something. And I want to I want to throw a wrench in your gears and tell me how you tell me how you respond to this. Just respond to it. That uh, if you could teach yourself anything, you wouldn't need to. All right, I can't teach myself Russian precisely because I don't know Russian, and if I did, I wouldn't need to teach myself Russian, right? Because I already know it, and I know that's not what you mean. So tell us in what sense it's true that we teach ourselves things because I really think you're onto something. And I think I'm, I'm actually not just kicking your essay in the ribs here because I think you do answer it, but I love, I love our audience to hear from you why those two things are either compatible or incompatible. Right. Um, well, the, the, I mean, I, I don't want to, I want to do, let's say the best I can to to honor the way that Charlotte Mason approaches this act of knowledge. Uh, one of the things that she she points out, maybe indirectly, uh, and it's been a while since I've read, uh, uh, I've read uh, the particular text that was the source of that that subsequent um, article, but you're, you're you're right in the sense that I can't teach myself anything. Because in order to be able to teach myself something, I already have to know it, right? And I think that was mentioned at least part of the conversation in a recent podcast that you did about the nature of teaching. And I think that the, the, the person that you had on talked about, you can't really teach anything unless you know it. And not just cursory, in a cursory way. You have to have a, a kind of profound ownership of it. It has to be a part of you. And if it's not a part of you, and I can tell you this from, from my own teaching experience, if it's not a part of you, the students know it. They, they can tell. They can see right through the fact that you don't know this as well as you pretend that you do standing up in front of us and making these claims and these comments and uh, stating these facts. They know. Story and, of my life. And, and, and conversely, uh, they also know when you are just in your wheelhouse because you it just it, it's as effortless as breathing and they they catch that they catch on to that and they recognize it in a way that um it it almost comes to life on its own right uh and so there is the the absolute truth that that uh you can't in one sense you can't teach yourself anything um but 
but what I think Charlotte Mason is trying to, um, she's trying to get to that point, and I, I can't remember the exact quotation, but the, the, it's that you're having a thought, um, the, the coming to the act of knowledge is, is when you ask yourself a question and answer it, right? It's the, it's the answer to a question that you ask yourself. And so where we go, where we go wrong in education is thinking that the students are full of questions, which in a sense they are, and that our goal as a teacher is to answer all of them. But, but rather, our aim should be, to put it simply, to, to form them in such a way that they become good askers of questions and then provide for them what through wisdom and experience and tradition are in, in our own estimation, the best answers and allow them to pursue those um, kind of recklessly, right? Kind of um, uh, without constraint uh, rather than- we, we teach ourselves through the question. Yeah. I mean, you, you say here, G.K. Chesterton puts it this way. A man who thinks hard about any subject for several years is in a horrible danger of discovering the truth about it. Or as Morpheus says, it's the question that drives us. So is, it, yeah. <laughs> is, that, is, is that related? I mean, is that kind of how, if, if we teach ourselves anything, it's not by a prepossession of the answer. It's by a question. Well, and yes, but the part the I think what Charlotte Mason argues is that um, you can't you can't ask a question about something you don't know anything about already. Mm. You can't. Mm -hmm. you, you, I can't ask a question about Joseph Pieper if I don't know anything about him already. Uh, because at some, but then at some point, someone will say, there's this person, this is his name. This, this is a little bit about who he is or who he was. This is what he wrote about. And I have that tiny little, tiny little fragment of knowledge. And then perhaps I'm inclined because I'm interested to, to do more. But until I heard of Joseph Pieper, that, that you, you don't know what you don't know. And so what, there has to be something in there already, which we receive. And that I think that that's what education, at least in part, tries to do is pass on a kind of collected wisdom from the past. But I think in the in the article, I go on to say that the beautiful thing about learning is that everything is inexhaustible. Everything. Wow. Yeah. We we don't think about everything as being inexhaustibly um, um, worthy of pursuit, but it's true. I, I had a conversation with my students before the end of the school year, and I can't, I, I honestly can't remember the particular thing that we were talking about, but, oh, that's right. This is it. I asked my kids, they're sixth graders. And I said, tell me the most boring thing that you can think of to think about. Hmm. What's the most boring thing you can think of to think about that you would think this is no one would want there's there's nothing interesting so they took them a minute and you know uh, they kind of they're you know pensive they they're actually having thoughts right they're actually like the wheels are turning it's a beautiful moment and uh, one of my students raises his hand and he says a rock <laughs> 
and, and they're like, oh, everyone's like, yeah, that's great. That's so boring. I'm like, okay. And then we spent, I'm not, we spent the next 45 minutes <clears throat> asking questions about rocks. Wow. You're a good teacher, Brian. That's, that's an amazing story. It was great. Um, and so what kind of rock? Oh, wait a minute. Are there different kinds of rocks? Oh, yeah. And so I said, what questions can you ask about that rock? How big is it? <clears throat> How much does it weigh? How long has it been there? Is there anything inside of it? Um, uh, why did it get there? Has it ever been touched before? Will it ever be used for anything else? And on and on and on and on. And before you know it, and I think I use the analogy of dinosaurs, the kid obsessed with dinosaurs. Now you all of a sudden you're looking into the beginnings of the universe, right? You start with a rock and then you end up with the big bang. Uh, and so that I think is what I love about the, the, the approach that Charlotte Mason takes. Um, <clears throat> and, and the way in which she, she isn't necessarily concerned Mm, it's a little dangerous to say, but she isn't necessarily concerned with mastery uh, mm -hmm. the way that, that we often talk about it because right. forget about it. I mean, please tell me what high school graduate has mastery of any concept or topic or event or any, what human being has mastery. What holder of a master's degree has mastery. Right. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Right so, on. I mean, that is beautiful. So what do you know? Thinking about thinking is the essay at magnusinstitute.org. And it's, it is beautiful because really the first principle of education is the thing itself, is the being itself. And that being by its very nature invites an infinite amount of questions that cultivate wonder. Right. And wonder is not, um, is not far out of reach if, if we just ask about things. Right. That's what we're built to do, right? And right. It, and it, but that wonder, it's also... You know, we think of wonder like a mystery, you know, like why does the dryer keep eating one of my socks? You know, I can't, I can't figure it out. Oh, well, I'll never know. But really mystery is the, the bush that burns, but does, does not quench. It's not consumed. It doesn't disappear. So it's at once sustaining and drawing into. So what is the best word for drawing into? It's sustaining and inviting that's a shallow right. word I, I, you know what i'm trying to say kind of kind of capturing kind of um seducing you know to be yes there. yes yeah. yeah yeah well at i don't know if there's much more we can say about that that was that was <laughs> awesome brian um brian how can people find out about you and what you do i know you are not a self-promoter which i appreciate so let us promote you for you yeah no i mean i have a, i have a twitter uh b underscore fink um and I, I find that I tweet less and less these days, in part because um, I, I get <clears throat> I get sucked in and and easily uh, distracted by all the goings on. And <clears throat> what I have found is that it makes me anxious and unsettled um, because there's a whole lot of things that are happening over which I have no control, and so it's fruitless to waste my time worrying about them. Uh, and, and so if, if I, if I spend too much time on there, I find that I'm anxious and agitated and I wish things would change, but I also recognize I don't have the power to, to change much of anything that's going on, let's say in Washington or Ukraine, uh, or China or, uh, really anywhere outside the 16 acres, 
that I live on, you know, and, and maybe in the classroom with, with grace and, and inspiration from the spirit. But, um, but I do like to, to try to share um, insightful articles and, and things maybe that I've read or, or listened to that, that are, that are beneficial, you know, um, I write a bit on Substack. Honestly, can't tell. I think it's Brian dot F I N K maybe at Substack. I don't, it's, it's, it's one of those. Um, <clears throat> I, it's where I post some of my poetry. Um, I like to write poetry on occasion. You can all, you can come. I mean, I'm not giving out my address, but, uh, I, I, I uh, DM for address. How about that? <laughs> That's right. You can come visit. <laughs> you can milk a goat. Uh, you can help me catch the pigs uh, when they That's, get out. Yeah. You got to get the grip strength. That's uh, of a Greek God. That's, That's right. right. That's, That's right. Yeah. Ryan, we need to meet in person. Um, the more I hear you talk, the more I think we should do an in-person event and have you there. So, well, that's, that's, that's kind. That's, uh, it's on the horizon for AMI and a few more really big things to announce as soon as they're official. So magnusinstitute.org for more. Join the fellowship today. Classes are in progress now for the summer session. They're going great from what I hear. Totally full with a waiting list. Uh, and the waiting list will not be, not everybody can get in, not, not everybody who knocks shall enter. So sign up now. If you give us money, you're pretty much guaranteed a spot in courses. Um, but if you, if you sign up early enough, uh, then you're probably guaranteed a spot in courses. So you don't have to give us money, but it really does help if you give us money. Cause then we can hire more people like Larissa and do great things with it. It really is a good use of your resources uh, what better fight is there to fight than that of education? So mm-hmm. Brian Fink, I know you do it every day and thank you for being a part of this great effort. Thank you. Very, very welcome. It's a great, it, it is a gift and, and an honor to be on. And it's, this is not a humble brag. This is not, a, I have to say this thing to make you all sound good, but, but it's, it, it what you're doing is a, is a gift to, to a community of people who are starving for what's true and what's good and what's beautiful. And, um, and I'm glad that you're grappling with those tough questions and 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 seeking the right answers. So so kudos kudos to y'all, Brian. Thank you. This is personally edifying for me in many ways. We'll see you see you soon. MagnusInstitute.org for more. Thanks, Larissa. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Brian. Right. Adios. Thanks a lot. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute Incorporated. To learn more way more by becoming a fellow today visit magnusinstitute.org copyright 2023 albertus magnus institute incorporated all rights reserved